Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, Richard, do you mind opening us with, with prayer? That'd be great, thanks. Our great God and Father, Lord, uh, we do bless you and we thank you for the, the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you mm-hmm. for today that we can come together and worship and honor you. Uh, we pray, Father, that the, uh, the time we have together, we can uh, learn about you, Lord, learn about your decrees. Father, we pray that uh, it will be a time that will be profitable uh, for us so we can be glorifying to you. Further uh, open our ears and open our hearts to to see you uh, to a uh, a greater degree. Uh, that we, mm. The more that we see of you, Lord, we know the the more we'll be drawn unto you. We pray, Father, that you would uh, continually uh, draw us to, to see uh, who you are, so we can um, worship you better. Uh, we can be more like Christ. Amen. So today we're on our eighth time, eighth lesson on the decrees of God. And like always, I'll just quickly review where we've been so far. We started out with the intro to this doctrine. Then we looked at the biblical basis for why we even say this is true. Good morning, everybody. And then we uh, looked at who God is. Because if we understand who God is, what His character is, what He's like, then we can have that as a safeguard and as kind of a guide for us to understand this better and as we look at this very difficult, mysterious uh, doctrine. Then after that, we looked at God and His incomprehensibility. Remember, we, we talked about how God is not fully comprehensible by our human mind. Our human mind is too small, too limited to fully understand Him. And so that means there's mystery and there's faith and worship involved in our relationship with Him. Then we looked at evil and suffering, and we looked at the character of God and how those two things relate to one another in relation to the decree then we looked at free will and god's sovereignty that dilemma we obviously couldn't look at every single one of these things comprehensively but we try our best to touch on them in a meaningful way then we looked at god's knowledge of the future does god understand does god have a exhaustive knowledge of the future does he decree whatsoever comes to pass in the future and then last time we started in on the doctrine of election and that, that's really this question of why are some people saved and others not, according, and how that relates to God's decree. And so today, uh, we'll look a little bit more at the doctrine of election. But first, let us first review the questions and the answers. And I'll read them, and you guys can read the or hopefully by now, maybe even close your eyes and say them from memory. <laughs> uh, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are the eternal purpose according to the counsel of the And how does God execute His decree? God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. Amazing. So now we will look at today's lesson. And so this is going to be about the fruits of the doctrine of election. So last time we began to look at this doctrine of election, and which uh, is closely related to the decrees of God. And we kind of talked about how those things connect and how it's mysterious and how it's interesting to look at that and, and we and we address very clearly the biblical basis for it. We looked at Ephesians one, remember mostly in, in our basis, but it's all throughout Scripture. And uh, as a brief review for those of you who may not know, the doctrine of election pertains to the fact 
that God did not leave all of mankind to perish in an estate of sin and misery, but out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, he has elected some people to everlasting life. That's in the words of confessional language, right? God from all eternity has elected some to everlasting life. So that's what this doctrine of election has to do with. So, so that brings us to this morning's lesson. So something that people do not always pay enough attention to. We often look at the nitty gritty details of the verses and the proofs and the, everything like that. But we don't always pay enough attention to properly understanding um, the way that the Bible uses this doctrine of election or the way that this doctrine and this reality from God produces good fruit in the life of a Christian or produces meaningful, uh, important results in the world. Because oftentimes we can look at something doctrinally, which, yes, we say, yes, that is true. But we have to know that if it doesn't produce these certain byproducts, if it doesn't produce these certain realities, then it might lead us to question whether it is true. So it's helpful to look at it from the other side, too, and say, this is what this doctrine is supposed to produce. So today's lesson is not so much solving a dilemma like we've done before, some kind of a problem in theology, but rather we will walk through the fruits of the doctrine of election together. And then, um, so last lesson we discussed election, defined it, got to it, and now we're going to look at what does it produce in the world. So um, I do believe this is another very important aspect of understanding how this connects to God's decree because it's helpful, it's really helpful for us because it's a mysterious doctrine, right? It's a mysterious reality, election, and God's decree that He's decreed whatsoever comes to pass. It's in many ways beyond our grasp. It's in many ways difficult for us to understand. But if we can say, wow, look at this, people who believe this, the church community that believes this, who embraces this, who lives according to this, well, their life is fruitful. It produces these wonderful realities in their life. Then I think it's a very meaningful thing for us to see. So um, this kind of outline for today's lesson is based on these four H's. And so I actually mentioned these in a sermon a while ago on Exodus 33. And uh, since they're so easy to remember and they're super helpful for explaining this doctrine, I'll just use them again as an outline for this lesson. Because um, I, this is based on John Piper's sermon on Exodus 33 as well. He talked about this. And so I couldn't help but... Bring that back. So when he's talking about the doctrine of election, Piper says the doctrine of election produces one, humility for the best of saints, two, hope for the worst of sinners, three, help for the cause of missions, and four, homage to the name of God. So there's four H's. So whenever you're asked, someone asks you about election, someone asks you what this is supposed to produce, you can remember those four H's. And since I've preached on that and had those four H's running around in my head. They've come in handy quite a few times. Really, they do. And, and that's why I've used them again here because it's an easy way for us to remember these things and a pretty helpful way to think about it. So it's quick and it's in our mind and it benefits us in order to explain and think about the doctrine of election, even in relation to our own spiritual life. And so that's going to be our outline. And so the first fruit of the doctrine of election is humility for the best of saints. Okay, the humility for the best of saints. So this doctrine of election, it brings out the fact that of our um, brings out the fact, the reality of our own unworthiness and the fate that we inevitably would have had it not been that God had chosen to save us, right? It brings our own unworthiness, our necessary humility that we should have. 
We would definitely not have known God or come to Him without His intervening grace, without Him being the one to choose us. So since this is true, the doctrine of election cannot help but produce um, true God-focused humility in those who really understand and believe it. Right? It can't help but do that. It must do that because the Scriptures are going to prove that to us here. And so we look at first at Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. It says, And you He made alive... Who were dead, I'll just, yeah, you can, you can look that up if you'd like, but I'll just read it from here. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So this is right after God in Ephesians 1 talked all about election and choosing those people, right? And this is also followed up by a very clear teaching of, of sola fide, or by faith alone, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. Um, and so what's important to realize is in this one little verse, if, if you have time, it might help you if you look it up in your Bible to follow along with me, but it says here, God made you alive, which means without Him you'd still be dead. Okay, So it means you didn't contribute anything. So you can't really be proud. You can't boast about anything. And it says later on in verses 2 down to 3, it says, if it had not been for God's intervening to making you alive, right? if He had not stepped in to save the day, then what would happen is you would still be walking exactly like everyone else. So left to your own devices, you would be a person who would walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. You would be conducting yourself in the lust of your flesh. You would be fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And you would be by nature still a child of wrath, and then it ends up, and it, and it finishes with, just as the others. So it says, you'd be just like them. And you are just like them, apart from the grace of God, right? Apart from God's electing, choosing grace. So in other words, how dare you act proudly? How dare any of us act in a way that's high and proud? In fact, the doctrine of election not naturally just knocks every single saint down to the same level in some sense. Knocks us right down to being equals. Every single one of us. Because we are all sinners saved by grace. We're all just beggars telling beggars where to find bread. Right? That's the reality about this doctrine. So it's an amazing doctrine in that sense. Every single guy is equal. Doesn't matter if you're supposedly the Pope. Supposedly a priest. Doesn't matter if you're even a pastor. Doesn't matter if you're the teacher of the Sunday school. We're all equal in the sight of God if we're in Christ. We're literally all equal, and so it's humility for the best of saints. There's not one single person out there holy enough to act like they did something great, that they deserve something, because were it not for God saying in eternity that I will save you, so-and-so, those people would be without hope. Those people would be just like everyone else, just as the others. And so let's look at a couple of quotes, too, on this topic that I thought were really great. The first one is from Horatius Bonner. I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know too much about him. You need to maybe ask Miss Bunny or something to educate you or something like that on that. But um, you wrote some good hymns. Yeah, I wrote some good hymns. And 
I think he was friends with uh, Robert Murray McShane. But I, don't, I, I really don't know that much about him. But he's a good quote. Here, let's, let's just look at the quote. God chooses us not because he foresees that we would choose him or that we would believe, but for the very opposite reason. He chooses us just because he foresees that we would neither choose him nor believe of ourselves at all. He chooses us because he knows we wouldn't, right? And then it ends with, election proceeds not upon foreseen faith in us, but upon foreseen unbelief. I just thought, I've never really heard it maybe taken from that angle before, but it's very helpful. It, if, if God did not choose you, if he did not choose to elect you, the only thing that would have happened is you would have kept on unbelieving. You would have kept on not having faith in him. So how on earth can you boast before God, right? How on earth... It's not that we are great, but it's that God is merciful enough to see, wow, these people are all headed to destruction. They're all going to end up unbelieving. So I need to choose. I need to intervene. I need to give them my Holy Spirit. I need to renew them and make them alive. And so it's amazing, a very helpful quote to bring out this necessary humility that election should produce in everybody. And then this is also a really wonderful quote from Charles Hodge. The doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him and exalt a man without inflating him. It's an amazing thing because there's this kind of contrast because if you realize who you truly are as someone who's totally depraved, your temptation could be to become totally like self-loathing in an ungodly way, to hate the image of God in yourself, to hate yourself entirely. But instead it says the doctrine of grace humble a man. It was truly humble. You see yourself for what you really are. You're made in the image of God, but you're a sinner. You're depraved. You're in need of grace. You see yourself accurately. The humble's a man, so you see yourself accurately. But it doesn't degrade you. It doesn't, it doesn't make you um, hate yourself in an ungodly way. It doesn't make you completely worthless. In fact, it exalts a man without inflating him. It exalts you in the place where you're supposed to be exalted, right? The world is always trying to exalt people but they're doing it the wrong way the doctrine of election exalts you in christ so in christ you can honestly say i'm a saint i'm an adopted child of god i'm an inheritor of eternal life i will inherit the earth you can say all these things they're true about yourself but none of those things makes you want to boast does it right because how could you how how on earth could you possibly boast about something like that you've received unbelievable riches and you've done nothing to deserve it and so it's amazing. It, it, it's amazing that the doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him, and they exalt a man without inflating him. So helpful. So now we're on to the second fruit of the doctrine of election, which is hope for the worst of sinners. Hope for the worst of sinners. Let's start with two uh, great Bible verses that kind of prove this emphasis of grace, that prove this emphasis of God's election. It says in Luke 5... Um, 531 to 32, it says, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, it says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So as we saw last week, the doctrine of election clearly teaches that God's saving grace is not a matter of our own readiness, right? It's not a matter of our own goodness. In fact, God literally explicitly many other times than just these 
says he doesn't just come to save good people. He doesn't come to save people who are supposedly righteous or who have done enough wonderful deeds or have tried to earn their way in front of him. No, in fact, it says that he came to save sinners, right? He brought sinners to repentance. And in fact, he said he came to save the chief of sinners. The worst possible form of sinners is the kind of people that God has, has sent his son into the world in order to save. And so that means there's hope for even the worst of sinners, right? And we found out last week, remember we talked about Romans 9 verse 16, where it says that it's not based on our performance. It's not based on our fitness. The verse says, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It is not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This means that the grace of God and the message of the good news is not for people who think they are good, who think they've done enough, who've willed enough, who've acted godly enough. No, in fact, it's for the worst of sinners. So the reason, um, the, the reason this all makes a lot of sense is because the grace of God, the electing grace of God, His choosing to save some, is actually intended to bring glory to God. And so what could bring more glory to the grace of God and to the character of God than to save the absolute worst possible people, right? You could imagine. So you save a kind of bad guy, then your grace looks kind of good. You save the worst possible guy, and you, your grace looks very, very good. Now, I'm not trying to say that even one, even one sin in the sight of God is horrible, of course. But it's always incredible that you can stand in a pulpit or you can stand on the street or you can be at your workplace and you can look somebody straight in the eye who's literally committed murder or who's literally committed adultery or someone who's literally done any number of horrible things, the worst possible things you can think of. There's things worse than those that you can think of, right? And there's hope for that person. That's amazing. The doctrine of election is the basis of that. It's the fact that God in His sovereign mercy could save somebody that, that bad, right? As bad as me, as bad as you, as bad as any murderer, any chief of sinners out there. And this magnifies the power and the mercy and the grace of God when He does that. It makes it look good. It makes it look powerful. It makes it look strong when He does that. That's why He does it. He, he brings glory to His own name through saving sinners. So there's no sin that you've done in your life that is able to outsin the grace of God because of this reality, right? There's no sin you've ever done in your life that's able to outsin the grace of God. There's no sinner that is beyond God's reach because it is His glory and His election that is behind it, right? It's His decree that's the thing that's upholding this whole system. So ultimately, this doctrine means that it does not matter how bad it is, how bad your sin is, it can be forgiven. The key is just you have to turn to Christ. You have to turn in repentance and faith to Christ. And then you have to leave your sin. You have to turn away from your sin and run towards Him. And that doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life from then on. It doesn't mean you're not going to stumble again. It just means that you have to turn. You have to repent. You have to run to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing you've done that's too bad to be forgiven. And now we move on to the third fruit of the doctrine of election, which is help for the cause of missions. So there are some who would consider a major drawback in the doctrine of election or something they would um, criticize about those who believe in it. They would say that there's a careless, um, carelessness or a disregard regarding missions. Right? Some people may say, if God elects and if he will certainly save, 
then why do we do missions, right? Why do we evangelize our neighbor? Why do we go out and do all these things? Or even why do we pray for the lost even? God's gonna, or why do we pray at all? If God's going to do everything, why do we do it? Why do we have to participate? And so, of course, this is a total misunderstanding of both the decree of God and the doctrine of election, right? Because we've been talking about this several times already, and throughout the whole lesson we've been addressing this, and we've said it many times. A person who's saying this kind of argumentation about evangelism and missions, they're making a big mistake, which is that they're forgetting that when God decrees something to happen, so in other words, an end, like somebody getting saved, he also decrees the means that bring about that end. For instance, somebody evangelizing them. He doesn't save people apart from people evangelizing them. He doesn't save people apart from the word of God. That's why Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so just as solidly as God has decreed that the elect will be saved, He also decreed that they will be saved by a certain means. And that means is the preaching of the Word of God. And so who are we as humans to sit back here, read the Bible, which clearly teaches the doctrine of election like we talked about last week, and then go, no, I'm not going to evangelize. I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to do the things that this God has commanded me to do to bring about His the salvation in the way that He's commanded it to come about. That would be an outrageous arrogance on our part, right? And it would be an outrageous misunderstanding of His decrees. It's not like... We even talked about that in the past of God, His free will and or His um, will and His decree and our free will and our actions in the world and how they fit together. That's a mystery, and your job is not to sit back and say, "Okay, God, you do it all. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to come worship you today. I'm not going to pray to you today. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to do any of these things. I'm not going to evangelize my neighbor." That's an outrageous misunderstanding of this entire doctrine. And it's actually an arrogant thing to do. So, in fact, though people would say that the doctrine of election kind of paralyzes missions and evangelism and, and things like that, I would actually say it does the opposite. It should do the exact opposite. It should, in fact, encourage greater effort in missions and greater effort in evangelism because, because God promises to bring success and he has guaranteed that the gospel will go out to the nations, right? In his word, he said, if you go into the nations and you preach the gospel, if you faithfully stick to my word, you faithfully do the things exactly like I've commanded you, it will bear fruit. It's a guarantee. So what greater motivation than that, right, for us as Christians? What greater motivation to go out and do it? That's not an excuse not to do it. That's an excuse to do it. So... Um, this is amazingly good news because it doesn't matter regardless of how stubborn your neighbor is or your family member is. It doesn't matter how closed and how anti-Christian a foreign country is to the gospel. God in His providence and in accordance with His gracious decree is able to make a way. He's able to make a way for missionaries and evangelists to preach the gospel there. He's able to make a way for a stubborn, closed-off, atheist person to open up their heart to Christ. He's able to do all of that because He's the one who's, who's choosing. He's the one who's guiding it. It's amazing encouragement to know that God in His doctrine of election has given us help for the cause of missions, right? He's given us hope even for the cause of missions. And so... Um, God has guaranteed that His Spirit and the Word will prosper in the world. And so we have an, an incredible incentive to preach 
the gospel, to love people, to do the work that he's called us to do, to be there for the poor and needy, to be a, to be a light in the world. We have incredible incentive for that. So I just want to also give this one example. I gave it earlier on in this series of Sunday School lessons, and I just want to say it again. It, it's very helpful for me in terms of how I think about this problem or this difficulty that people have with election. It's, um, it's not like the doctrine of election makes us want to work less. It makes us want to work more, as I've just been finished saying. Because um, think about this. I've said it before, but think about this. Like, when, when I was in college, we won a championship one year in hockey, right? And I remember playing. There was about 10 minutes left on the clock, and we're up by a few goals, and we're about to get the trophy, right? Like, it's guaranteed there's this amazing thing coming ahead. It's almost locked down. Do you think our team started playing less intensely? Like we were less excited to win the trophy? Or do you think we started to pick up momentum, more energy, more excitement, more drive, more determination to win? The closer you get to the goal, I don't think the less excited you want to work. The closer you get to the goal, the more excited you want to work, right? And so the same is for us. Man, we have this guarantee, this guarantee that God is actually going to go forth. He's going to win. This, is, this whole thing has already been won in Christ Jesus, right? And so that means like we, we should be like the people with 10 minutes left in the championship game, working more diligently, working more joyfully, more excitedly. It just makes total sense that way, right? It's not the other way around. It should be motivating us. It should make us less lazy. It should make us want to strive towards victory like, like Paul's using these analogies of an athlete running towards the race. It's, he's, he's using the analogies of a soldier fighting in a war to get to that final uh, victory day, right? And so we have this amazing, um, amazing motivation in the doctrine of election to go and do the work we're called to do, whatever that may be. And for each and every one of us, to some degree, if we're Christian, that entails mission work, right? It entails either sending missionaries, it entails being missionaries, it entails sharing the gospel with our friends, with our neighbors, it, it entails living this life out in, in our daily life. And so that's, that's an amazing fruit that the doctrine of election produces. And it only makes sense if God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and we can trust confidently in His Word that He's going to make these things come to pass. And so now we're looking at the final fruit of the doctrine of election, which is homage to the name of God. Homage to the name of God. So let me ask you this. What does homage mean? Anybody know what homage means? I want to make sure. Sorry? Pay respect. Yeah, yeah. Like to pay respect or show honor to somebody. So what it means in a dictionary is to show special honor or respect publicly. So there's that public element to homage. So when it comes up to us honoring and respecting God, we call this homage worship, right? When we're worshiping God, we're living with our whole life, our whole self towards God. That's, that's homage to God. That's worship to God. So... The doctrine of election also brings glory to God's name. It brings homage to God. This is ultimately the whole point of the whole thing. That's why I put it last. That's why it's last. John Piper put it last. I didn't do that. (laughs) Um, It's last because this is the whole central focus of the whole thing. So um, Romans 9, 22 to 23 says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the riches of his glory is at stake in his salvation, his election. Him wanting to choose some for salvation and allowing some to perish is in terms of him showing his glory, showing forth his justice, showing forth his riches on the vessels of mercy. And then in Ephesians 1 verse 5 to 6, that passage we looked at last time, so filled with the doctrine of election and God's gracious decision to choose some for salvation. It says in this verse, God teaches us that um, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of, of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So in other words, the entire process of God seeking to save the lost, of him choosing to save some people and leaving others, the entire process of him being gracious and showing according to the good pleasure of his will, according to his decree, grace to some sinners is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Right? So that's so that the people he saved will worship him. So that's so that for all ages... Everyone and everything will have their knee bowed, will know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he is the most glorious king, the most glorious God, that our God is a God who saves, a God who is victorious. All these things, there's so many reasons, but everything is directed towards homage to the name of God. So the name of God will be exalted. Remember that? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? At the end of the day. So in other words, this name is exalted. The name of our God is exalted because of His amazing, eternal decision, decree to save the lost. And His plan being executed in our lifetime, in our lifetime, in our world. And we get to be a part of it. And so then, there's a wonderful... um, kind of statement here, a quote that summarizes, is a guy named Sam Storms, his book on uh, election, summarizing Jonathan Edwards's teaching on the reasons that God's grace in election is so glorious and worthy of worship. And so this is where this quote comes from. He's summarizing Jonathan Edwards and he says, grace is glorious because of the dignity and excellence of the gift it bestows. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Grace is glorious because of the degree of horror from which it delivers us in its eternal punishment. Grace is glorious because of the immeasurable unworthiness of those on whom it is lavished. And grace is glorious because of the manner by which it was given. Through the incarnation, the humiliation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's a total... Summary of what I was just teaching, right? What I was just saying is that grace is exalted. Grace is magnified and lifted up in all of these different elements that have taken place. And especially in the fact that Jesus Christ and his incarnation, humiliation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, glorification, everything points to the amazing grace of God, right? And that's all only possible because of God's eternal decree to elect, to save some. To send Jesus Christ into the world. To pay the price. To exalt that grace. And then look. Like remember again. The Ephesians verse. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. Right? It's to the praise of the glorious grace of God. That all of this has taken place. So it's important to realize that the grace of God is actually inseparable from the electing work of God. 
It is in it that we see that God brings glory to his name. And we are to respond by worshiping God. Right? We're supposed to respond to this grace by worshiping God, by bringing homage to God. By ourselves, because we've been elected. By ourselves, because we're people who've experienced this. Now we, we're supposed to be a source of this homage to God, of this worship to God. We're supposed to produce this same, have this same fruit by the Holy Spirit produced in our life. To bring homage to the name of God as those who've been chosen. So that's what we're, what we're going to be doing in, in a few minutes, Lord willing. And so I, uh, on this same topic regarding worship and, and regarding this doctrine and how this is supposed to produce fruit in our life. I found another helpful quote that I'm going to just quickly go through with us and then we'll wrap it up. Um, this is our last part of the lesson, but let me just read this to you. Sam Storm says, God did not choose you so that the idea of his choosing you might merely bounce around in your brain. He chose you for worship, which I define as the proclamation of his excellencies and your extravagantly affectionate and inexpressible joyful delight in them. That was a bit of a long sentence, but we'll get back to that in a second. This is clearly the point of 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Into his marvelous light. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's that element of worship being produced by those who've been chosen. So in other words, he's saying, don't just let this Sunday school lesson, don't just let this doctrine just be some fun intellectual exercise, but let it bear fruit. So that's why we did this lesson in the first place, is to see what all that fruit is. Why is that fruit so reasonable? Why is it so almost automatic in those who know it and truly understand it, who really have their mind and their heart wrapped around the gospel and the cross? People like that proclaim God's excellencies and they're extravagantly affectionate and inexpressibly joyfully delighted okay, in this fact, which is unbelievable to think about. This is how it's supposed to stir you up. It's supposed to move you to worshiping God, to being someone who's living for God, who's someone who's even in the midst of trials and tribulations and hardships in life is able to still look to God and still praise Him, still sing to Him, still come into His presence together with the saints, even when you don't feel like it. I'm sure some of you feel not like it all the time. Not like it today even, maybe. But we get to come together to worship God. We get to draw near to Him today and worship. And it's because of His grace. It's because of His electing grace. It's because of His inexpressible gift that He's given to us. And so that's the... Um, that's the entirety of the lesson for today. Um, I'm just wondering if any of you guys have any questions or anything like that. Do you have any uh, thing you'd like to add to this that would um, benefit the other people in here? Nothing? Okay, <laughs> let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much um, for the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you so much, Lord, that there's hope uh, for the worst of sinners, Lord, that there's humility even for the best of saints, God, that there's help for the cause of missions, and that we 
can live to glorify your name, that we can live to bring homage to your name, that we um, know that even if we fail, that you still will inevitably in eternity and in throughout time bring homage to your name. And in Jesus Christ, you have done that. You've brought ultimate glory and honor and praise publicly to the name of Jesus Christ. And even one day you're going to come back on a He's going to come back on a cloud with trumpets to declare that glory and to declare that name and to make that even more known than ever before. And we can use that as great encouragement. And one day we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be restored to complete fullness and newness of life. And we can use that also as encouragement and as energizing joy for our our race of the Christian life, Lord. And I do pray that you would Um, Just help this doctrine to become a living reality in our hearts, that it wouldn't just be a thing that we kind of think about or that we hold as a source of pride or a source of personal identity as a reformed person, but rather as something that totally shapes us, makes us live more godly lives, that makes us even in the moment when we're sinning or in the moment when we're in a difficult situation, leaning on you, trusting in you, being confident that you're the God who is able to bring us to completion, that you're the God who's able to deliver us and the God who's able to set us free, Lord. I pray all of this in Jesus' name and I thank you for this wonderful day and I pray that you'd be with us as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.